Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our session on a dying Europe. Let me assure you that no one on the panel chose the wording of that topic and uh, we're not proposing that Europe is dying. Let me introduce myself and our panel. My name's Greg Sheridan. I'm the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper. And uh, our panel is Michael Wesley, a professor at the ANU and author most recently of Restless Continent, which he just told us was going to be called Savage Continent, but some other bugger had stolen the title uh, for him. Uh, Helen Joyce, the international editor of the immensely influential Economist, who has shown astonishing restraint in being the only panellist not to have a book currently to promote. <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> Tariq Ali, who needs no introduction, author most recently of The Extreme Centre, commentator and author. And um, I'm going to tell you that uh, the book I've most recently written is called When We Were Young and Foolish. The difference is that we are no longer young. And uh, we're going to explore, I suspect, the um, two predominant crises uh, in Europe today. One, of course, the... Uh, question of people movement and refugees uh, flowing out of the Middle East and North Africa into Europe, and the other of um, the economic troubles that Europe is having and what implications this uh, economic difficulty has for the governing institutions of Europe and the institutions of Europe versus the idea of Europe, the ideal of a united Europe, the forthcoming referendum in Britain, and so on. So we might start by asking Helen Joyce, because of her distinction in not having a book to currently promote, to, uh, to begin proceedings. Helen, we're all uh, aghast at some of the scenes of human suffering that we've seen of people trying to flee by boat from the Middle East to Europe. Um, how do you evaluate this crisis? Where is it going? And although this is not the most important aspect of it, what do you think it means for European institutions and the comity of, um, of European nations, given the rather contradictory policy stances we've seen from national governments? So on the where it's going front, it's kind of hard to answer that because we're being overtaken by events. That's what we're watching. We're watching individual countries and individual politicians you know, making policy on the fly and then having to change their minds. I mean, if we look at Hungary, you know, first it closed its trains, then it reopened its buses, then it said it was putting buses on, then it's taken buses back off again because they literally don't know what to do. Um, so I can't make a long-term prediction. All I will say is war is on our borders. What's on our borders? War is on our borders. Mm. There is war right on our borders. This is the first time since the Second World War that Europe has been faced with a crisis of this proportions, flow of movement of this proportions. And the European project, the post-Second World War project, was born from the ashes of the Second World War. And if Europe means anything, it does mean giving refuge to people. So when we look back further, before the Second World War, um, there was a famous conference when President Roosevelt gathered together in 1938 European leaders and tried to get them to respond to the, at the time, the growing crisis of Jewish and other refugees from Germany. And we heard a lot of the same things said. So various politicians said things like, um, well, we have too many jobless people here. We can't take in more people. Because, you know, we'll be overwhelmed. We'll be flooded. They use the same words that they're using now. And Hitler was able to say, well, you don't like the way that I'm treating Jews, but you don't want them either. And I see strong echoes of that now. Um, 
Just one follow-up question before we move to another panellist. Um, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel commented recently that Europe would be far more preoccupied with this issue than it would be with the issue of the Greek economy and mm. the economic bailouts and so on. Now, given that people thought that was an existential crisis mm. for the European project, do you think she's right in that assessment? I do, and I see a, a strong structural similarity in the two of them, which is something like the contradictions in the way that Europe has tried to unite. I mean, the European project is one of integration, but at the same time, people, countries don't want to give up their sovereignty. They're both very understandable, but they are in, in, inherently in, in conflict and in tension. And both Greece and the Euro crisis and this uh, migrant crisis are tearing at this, this tension and putting people in a situation where they are going to have to make some decisions. So, for example, we have borderless movement within more than 20 European countries. How can that be while we have a, a large inflow of migrants and uh, in individual countries being in charge of their migrant policy? That, that can't be. That's a contradiction that you can only ignore when you have no inflow of migrants. Same with the euro. The euro, the euro is a common currency. It's run by the central bank, but individual countries run up their own debts. That's again a, a, a conflict that cannot be managed when countries run up big debts like Greece did. It could only be ignored when countries weren't running up big de debts or when countries were growing. So I see them both as the same, that we are now in a situation where we have to face up to these tensions that have been ignored during the boom years. I remember uh, in an undergraduate philosophy course being taught that things cannot be and not be at the same time under the yeah. same aspect, but of course, no politician has ever done that philosophy. No, course. politicians they've, want uh, to have everything. They've, they've yeah. done a kind of a... Yeah. So, Tariq Ali, you're someone who has made a clear distinction between the institutions of Europe and the European idea. Mm -hmm. How are both of those uh, affected by this refugee crisis? Well, uh, the, there are two crises uh, which have been going on, or three really. One is the economic crisis post-2008, uh, which led to the crash of economies in uh, Ireland, Portugal, Greece. Italy trembled for a long time and isn't yet over the crisis. And these have affected uh, the, the, the structures of the European Union, the single currency, how it functions. And many questions are being asked by economists in Germany and elsewhere as to whether the single currency can last. Secondly, there's the question of migration within Europe. Now, if you join the European Union, apart from the free movement of capital, the rules have till recently um, acknowledged that the free movement of labor within the European Union is part and parcel of what you accept. And this is now being challenged by a number of countries. Why? Because essentially right-wing populist parties have come up and said there are too many. It's not racist. It's, it's, it's traditional attitudes to immigration, saying there are too many Polish people in England, or there are too many Romanians, or if we let the Bulgarians in, there'll be a horde. And in fact, when the Bulgarians did come in, people went to the airport to check up, and on the first flight from Sofia, there were about two Bulgarians. I mean, the others, the others were tourists. So, <laughs> Um, so, you know, you have this hysteria that has been built up in terms of immigration within the European Union. So that is what has made 
immigration a big issue of debate. Now you have the refugees and the asylum seekers, uh, and what we are witnessing is probably the largest movement of people since the Second World War, and the reason is very clear. It's the wars, it's the breakup that the traditional borders of the Middle East that were put in place after the First World War, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, um, which divided the Arab world, this is now being chucked aside. And effectively, the Arab world as we have known it since the occupation of Iraq has been in a state of disintegration, and this continues. The disintegration of Iraq, the fights between Shia and Sunni, created further rivalries between local states, is beginning to break up Syria, and you have millions of people fleeing. And just to be accurate, it's worth pointing out that the bulk of the Syrian refugees are already in neighboring countries. So it's not that all those refugees are wanting to burst into uh, Europe. The figure we have is a quarter of a million refugees want to come into Europe, uh, which is why Merkel has said, let's sit down and see how many people can take, how many countries can take, how many refugees. And that is uh, now being discussed, but so that you cannot isolate the question of refugees from the wars that many of these countries have been fighting, including your own. How do you think it will uh, uh, unfold in the next uh, six <sighs> months or so? If there is no stability in the Middle East, look, we, you know, Libya was taken out, six-month NATO bombing campaign, God knows how many casualties. And uh, the result of that is that Libya is now divided into three parts. One part is run by ISIS, one part is run by Al-Qaeda, and the third part is run by local jihadi groups. So naturally, many people, including some who had been hostile to Gaddafi, say it was better under him. They say that. Mm. Uh, and in any case, we're trying to get out. So, I mean, the photographs you see of people trying to clamber onto liners from Tripoli and other ports in Libya is huge. So unless some form of stability uh, reaches that region, I think that this, this could carry on. I mean, I don't know for how long. It's, uh, it's difficult to predict. Michael Wesley, um, uh, I'd not like you to come at this from a slightly different angle. Now... You and I have been writing predominantly about Asia for many, many years. Uh, I for a few more decades than you, as you can observe in Michael's handsome, youthful mien. He looks like, he looks like George Clooney 30 years oh, ago. Uh, whereas I, I look like Mel Gibson, but when he's sober. When he's sober. But Michael, the question I wanted to ask you is, um, when, when we started writing about Asia, you would often hear... Asians say we're at the start, especially in Southeast Asia, especially in ASEAN, you would hear people say we're at the start of the same journey that the Europeans are on and we want, uh, we want an ASEAN, an association of Southeast Asian nations, which is as intimate and as successful as the European Union. Now, I would say for the last 10 or 15 years, I haven't heard anyone say mm. that. In fact, I hear the reverse. Mm. I hear ASEAN people say, by God, whatever we're doing, we're not going to end up like the European mm. Union. Now, is that a fair summary of Asian sentiment? And how would you reflect on European institutions in comparison with and from the vantage point of someone who has a deep scholarly knowledge of Asian institutions? Yeah, look, um, 
Greg, I think, you know, when I was thinking about this, um, this subject and, and this very provocative title and then listening to Helen and Tariq, I think I would say that, that Europe itself is not dying. I think Europe will be uh, an ongoing centre of power in the world. My very good friend Hugh Mackay, who's an economist with Westpac Bank, did some modelling uh, out to the end of this century, at the end of the 21st century. And he showed that by the end of this century, there will be four great centres of economic power in the world. The United States, China, India, Europe. So anyone who's betting long on Japan or Brazil, sorry to give you the bad news, um, they're going to be the, the, the four big powers. I think what's, what's dying here under a triple assault um, the economic uh, crisis, the refugee crisis, and the Russian crisis, I think, th those would be the three, is the old utopian vision of Europe. The idea that Europe, after the Second World War, had fundamentally changed the way that international relations worked. You had countries that had been at war with each other for centuries, been killing each other, drenching the, the soil with blood, suddenly finding a political compact among themselves, and becoming wealthy and free and really a centre of, of, of moral uh, aspiration, if you like, for how countries should, um, should make themselves. And that was the, the Europe, I think, that was so attractive to those in Southeast Asia. I think Europe is in the process under these three assaults of becoming a normal great power, one that has terrible internal governance, uh, one that is uh, united around uh, economic necessity and one that is essentially internally hierarchic. Uh, I think Germany will emerge as the leader of Europe. Everyone else will follow in its train because it's got all of the money and all of the productive power. And Europe will start being as, as ruthless and as, let's call it amoral, as any other great power has been in, in, in human history. So I think that's why in our part of the world, Europe is less held up as this great example for everyone else. Uh, and people are starting to think, well, maybe international relations doesn't change that much. Maybe the Europeans are actually like the rest of us. We'll come back to the centre of Europe in a moment, but just one more uh, question on the Asian dimension. Um, it's always seemed to me, but tell me if this is true or not, that at any stage in the last period since 1945, Asians have had infinitely less interest in pooling sovereignty mm. than Europeans. And in fact, Asians now, if they talk, well, and I'm here talking about Northeast Asians and Southeast Asians, and perhaps we could include India in this, if they talk about international organisations, they talk about close national cooperation, but they have absolutely zero interest in pooled sovereignty or even in, um, in kind of uh, transnational arbitration. Uh, mm. Typically, India will say, well, don't take our rhetoric about the United Nations seriously. We don't want them to come anywhere near Kashmir. Mm. Is, is that a fair assessment? I, I think? think that's absolutely right. And I think the reason, if I can be a little bit... Um, kind of give you a little bit of psychobabble about it. Um, Asian countries came out of uh, a whole colonial era of having their sovereignty ripped away from them and their independence ripped away from them. They, don't, they, they weren't about to embark on another project of giving it back to someone else or sharing it with anyone else. 
Asians, uh, Asian countries seem to be great believers in all of their difference in the command power of the state. The state is something that can work things out. Um, whereas in Europe, uh, I think all of European history has, after the Second World War, led to a fear of what politics can do and what unbridled politics can do, both internationally and domestically. So what do you do? You shackle politics in institutions, be they democratic institutions and the rule of law domestically or regional institutions that require the pooling of sovereignty uh, internationally. In Asia, there's a very different historical experience. Uh, a lot of Asian societies say we were doing very, very well until these Europeans came and took away our independence. Then we became terribly poor. And look at what's happened now that we've got rid of the European colonialists, we're booming. Why would we possibly give up our independence again? And I think that's two very, very separate philosophies of politics and how the state works. And for Australia, that's a particularly delicious uh, uh, dilemma for us because, of course, philosophically, we, we agree with the Europeans. We have these great traditions of liberal democratic uh, limitation of political power, but here we are in a region that glorifies the command power of the state. Mm. Helen, uh, I wonder if we could go back to the European economy. And uh, I saw an editorial in your August uh, magazine about uh, the people movement issue the other day, which I think was headed, let them in and let yeah. them work. Yeah. Now, could it be that despite all the human misery that has been involved in all this, that there's an economic upside, that mm. Europe, which is an, an, an ageing, uh, greying society, actually gets um, an economic dividend out of this infusion of, of new people. So when I heard the title Dying Europe as the potential, you know, not, not our might title, be on. I no, 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 but say. just the first thing I did think of immediately was the ageing crisis for Europe. Uh, this is before the, the recent, um, you know, the, the catapult to the front of the news of the, the migrant crisis. Um, so it's been clear for years that Europe isn't reproducing itself. We, we are, we, many countries in Europe are well below replacement rate in terms of workers. And at the same time, part of this utopian vision that, that Europe was built on has involved, you know, good pensions, generous pensions for workers, you know, decent retirement rights and so on. We've way overpromised, enormously overpromised anything that could possibly be paid for by the new generation of workers. So some countries have already entered into this downward spiral where you have to raise taxes in order to pay the pensions you've already promised. That puts people off working, gets them to emigrate. You have fewer people working, on and on it goes. You see how this goes. Now, we're the economists. We generally are for the free movement of labour, capital, people, whatever jobs, we, we were founded to campaign against uh, restriction on imports of grain, you know, high tariffs and so on. Um, it would be our starting point if people want to come, let them come, because when people come, they're more productive. If you're a, a Syrian refugee, and as Tariq rightly said, many of these people are in large numbers, are camped out in refugee camps in neighbouring countries, they're not working, they're not doing anything, their entire human capital is locked up in a situation where you know, they can't offer anything to the rest of humanity. You let them into a stable country with the rule of law, with institutions, they can work, they can be doctors, they can do do all sorts of things that are needed, you actually benefit everybody. One quick follow-up. Is the European welfare state um, incompatible with the traditional ideas of immigration, which were that immigrants got opportunity? Uh, you know, the welfare state does have some, uh, some disincentive 
consequences. Well, I, I mean, the research that's been done in many European countries is that immigrants pay in more than they take out mm. as long as they're allowed to work. The most... <laughs> I, I, I mean, the reason this editorial said was let them in and let them work. If you let them in and don't let them work, they don't, <laughs> they don't assimilate, they've no way to become, you know, an Australian or a German or a British person. If you let them in and they let them work, they've already become adults, the adults among them. You haven't had to pay for them as children. You didn't pay for them to be born. Here they are, they're working, and they're helping to pay for the people that you promised pensions for that you actually couldn't afford. So providentially, these people are here to help, you know. They're already very motivated people. You don't get onto a boat to cross, you know, for that incredibly dangerous dangerous journey from Libya to Greece, unless you're a very motivated person. So, uh, you know, I understand that it's politically very unpalatable to say to people who've, you know, spent some time feeling that immigrants are stealing their jobs. The evidence we have is that immigrants are not stealing your jobs. They're coming in, they're increasing demand, they're booming, they're helping your economy to get out of the, of the rut that it's in. Real leadership for a politician would mean making that argument, telling people, yes, I know that you're worried about these people, I know that you're worried you're going to lose your job. Honestly, the evidence isn't there for that. Tariq, um, how much... Yeah, it's not, not for me to make editorial comments, but I've always been massively pro-immigration for the same reasons. I mean, some people do think there are already uh, too many Australians and what the world needs is fewer and better Australians. But I, 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 think, we need, I think we need more and better Australians. Tariq, um, how much does the attitude to non-European migrants vary across Europe? That is to say, is, is there a radical difference between, as we're seeing, Germany and Hungary? And uh, will this lead to very differential uh, experiences? Is there anything wrong with that? Well, <coughs> well, they are differential. I mean, in Britain, for instance, uh, the British governments, Tory and Labour, actively went out to recruit migrants. I mean, Enoch Powell, a politician you might recall, uh, was centrally involved in recruiting West Indian Caribbean nurses so that the health service could function. And there has been, of course, race riots, uh, lots of tensions, but by and large, technically, all the migrants have enjoyed exactly the same rights as the population, the indigenous population. So in terms of legalities and rights, <clears throat> it has, it, things have changed now, but for a long time this happened and that did help to a certain extent Britain to be more integrated than for instance France, uh, which uh, in its own way has been very hostile actually to former citizens of its colonies and in Germany where migrants were referred to for couple of decades as guest workers, the implication being you'll come and work and then go back. But Greg, if I might just say something on Europe in general. It was a very peculiar conjuncture that helped to draw Western Europe together. After all, the Russians had got Eastern Europe. And so the United States, unlike any other imperial power in history, actually revived its rival capitalisms via the Marshall Plan to build them up to face the communists. That has never happened before and it's unlikely to happen again because that thing is gone. And that gave Europe a huge impetus 
in the early days. That's one point. The other point I wanted to make is that Europe is a country not with no single language, unlike all the other countries you've mentioned. This is a country, a, a continent with many languages, of which the most powerful country's language, German, is barely spoken in most of the other countries. That's one problem. Secondly, no other part of the world, no other country has been created in this fashion without political federation and launching a single currency. That has now come to the fore. And thirdly, because of the economic crisis, many, many countries are saying we want our sovereignty back. This is not enough. Because, you know, when the... A troika goes in and says you can't spend any money at all without asking us. It leads to absolute anger. The people, to a certain extent, where I was told in Ireland the Irish cabinet didn't know whether to spend 100,000 uh, euros on the arts or not till they'd rung up the troika and got permission. And this has led to a huge political crisis in Greece. I think one Irish party is probably going to be semi-obliterated in the uh, uh, elections. Portugal, emigration from Portugal has reached new levels and people going from Portugal to where? Angola and Brazil. Migration has started. Many young people are leaving Ireland, probably coming here, going to Canada, etc. So there is a crisis which we shouldn't underplay, which is a crisis linked to the way in which Europe functions, where the institutions are not democratic at all, and where Merkel, despite whether she wants to or not, travels around Europe as a queen. Germany is the most powerful country in Europe, and the German-French alliance has broken up. And that has given the Germans far more strength because the, there's no countervailing force mm. in the sense of the French coming in because the French are now seen as Atlanticists. Uh, and no longer that confidence which used to exist in olden times. So we have a real crisis of identity for Europe, a political and an economic crisis. And I don't think that Europe structured as it is now either its um, uh, um, currency or its other structures can last for too long. There will have to be huge reforms. And what shape they'll take, we'll see. What do you think is going to happen in the British referendum on the EU? <clears throat> well, this is a very... Yeah, I, I think the last opinion poll showed a majority small majority against. Against leaving. Uh, no, yes, against leaving. Against leaving, sorry. <clears throat> uh, but because the left in British politics and in European politics has till now been very pro-European, um, this has meant that the right has had the running. Jeremy Corbyn, if he is elected leader of the Labour Party, he's been very critical of how Europe functions, saying things not too different from what I've just said to you. But whether he will call for a no vote, I don't know. I know that despite all my Europeanism, I can't vote for this Europe. EU, not Europe. The, this Europe. So I will vote no. You'll vote to leave. I will vote to leave in order to compel this European Union and its bureaucracy to wake up and see what's going on and think again and reform. Michael, um, building on what Tariq has said there, and let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, in about four or five minutes I'm going to ask for questions from, from you, and there's a microphone over there and a microphone over there, and... Um, 
So uh, we'll, we'll have about 20 or 25 minutes of, of questions from you. But Michael, just arising out of what Tariq has just said, uh, it seems to me in this country we're getting quite a strong de facto alliance between the populist left and the populist right, who typically mm. both hate trade agreements, both don't like foreigners one way and another, uh, both don't like modern economics, and, um, and in a sense both don't like modernity. Mm. Uh, but, and you seem to see a bit of that in Europe as well. Mm. But is that... Um, now, you might speculate that that's partly the fracturing of the old left and right blocks uh, in many parts of the world. Perhaps it has something to do with social media where everybody, uh, every populist uh, is, is, is a, um, you know, is a TV commentator for a minute. But what's your reflection on that as it applies to Europe and Australia? Well, do you mind defining what populist means? What is a populist? Look, it's very unfair of you, Tarek, to ask me to, no, uh, no, because to define <laughs> my terms. I mean, you, you asked a loaded question using the word left populist and right. I just want to know how you would define a populist. Well, I think I'll just let Michael okay. answer the question. He's <laughs> a great chair. Can, can I vote with Tariq? No. Um, uh, look, I, I, I think people are confused about what left and right means anymore, Greg. I think we've come... Uh, past the end of the Cold War when left and right really meant something. We've come through uh, periods of neoliberal economic reforms in most Western countries. Uh, and I think, um, you know, both what you might call right populism and left populism uh, are, are looking for easy answers in, a, an, in an increasingly difficult world. Uh, and easy answers that come in very short slogans that, uh, that people can popularise, people can get behind and people can really um, uh, believe in. The interesting thing I think that's happening at the moment is what's happening to Greek politics where you had the Tsipras government um, come to power on a very clear uh, statement of what it was going to reject and what it was going to do. Um, people overwhelmingly voted for that government and yet it got mugged by reality. It, the, the, the reality of what Greece had to do was so much more complex uh, than, um, than uh, what they, they had been planning to do. And so you had a government really um, commit suicide. I mean, in, in, in full vision uh, uh, to capitulate to what uh, the Europeans had demanded and then essentially to, to go back to the polls. So, I mean, you, I think you're seeing a very, very confused uh, picture of politics, particularly in Europe, but I think you're starting to see the same elements here in Australia as well. Well, I, I, I must say it will be a, a, a good time for journalists if for no other part of humanity. And, I mean, I understand some people might think the terms journalists and humanity are not exactly uh, coterminous, but it'll be a good time for journalists when President Donald Trump welcomes <laughs> Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn and President Marine Le, Fran uh, Marine Le Pen and, and a re-elected Prime Minister Cyprus into, uh, into the White House. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd very much like to get you to participate. Uh, would, down there, would you go to microphone one? Hello. Ooh, hi. Thanks for your time. Fascinating. Um, I'd like to pose the question that uh, what we're seeing potentially with the stuff going on in Europe at the moment is not so much, uh, what did you say, Michael, China, Europe, 
USA and India moving to the fore over the next 100 years. But are we seeing the point of tension right now between not left and right, but compassion and humanitarian global thinking versus traditional power structures? Well, let's ask Helen to respond first to that. I, I guess nobody likes to think of themselves as not compassionate and not humanitarian. So, for example, people who feel that we shouldn't be you know, allowing or saying we're going to allow large numbers of Syrian refugees to resettle, they, they sometimes couch what they're saying in terms of compassion. They say if we allow large numbers of them to settle, then we're encouraging them to get into the boats and come here and more of them will die. So they, it's their stating, their, their position is also compassionate. So I, I don't see that as the split. I think we're in such difficult times, maybe no times have ever been easy for humanity, but I mean, it does seem like unusually difficult times in Europe. And for every difficult question, there is an answer that's straightforward, clear and wrong, isn't there? And so those wrong answers are becoming, you know, increasingly attractive to people and there are many different sorts. So that's what, I, that's what I'm seeing, is I'm seeing less willingness to accept reality. That's certainly what we saw in Greece. Um, and that unwillingness to accept reality can, can go into a sort of a siege mentality, you know, where you, you, you're afraid of any change, you're afraid that things are all moving too fast, that you, know, people are, you start to use words like swamped. It's not that you're not humanitarian or compassionate, it's that you're scared. Maybe that's what we're seeing, the politics of fear. I was reacting to a, I was reacting to a comment from Tariq earlier, Sorry. which was um, perhaps Europe will move towards a power block of its own. And... Um, cast away some of that utopian view and become more like what the rest of the world was, I think, along those lines of something what you were saying. So that sort of inspired that thinking in me based on that more recent conversation around left versus right. Tariq? Well, I think, you know, to say that anyone who doesn't agree with the neoliberal economic system, endless privatisations, endless worship of profit, is a populist is utterly ludicrous. I mean, it's people who want the status quo, who've seen the way in, these, in which these countries have toppled till 2008. Who was responsible for the 2008 Wall Street crash? Populists? No. It was the bankers on whom the neoliberal politicians and this whole class depends, which is why they weren't able to reform anything. The Americans were marginally better, by the way, in what they did in the United States by a stimulus. In Europe, they were just stuck to the German model of what had to be done and what couldn't be done. And anyone who steps outside this bubble world which includes the media, which includes politicians, and which includes the politics which failed in 2008 and are now troubling Australia because of the crisis in China, is accused of somehow being unreal, wrong, when what Tsipras was demanding in Greece was incredible. Read his program. Read the Thessaloniki program. It's so mild that it's embarrassing. And he was told that they couldn't even have that. So to call this sort of unacceptable or extreme is nonsense. It's the refusal of the center. That's why I call it the extreme center, which supports this system, which will not reform it, which makes wars to move or act. That creates anger, bitterness, 
on the right, within the center, and on the left, in all the different parts of uh, the body politic. It's unsurprising. We had this in the 30s as well. A huge economic crisis, a huge polarization, and there it was a victory of the extreme right. And then you had the first European Union, which was Hitler's occupation of the whole of Europe, barring England and Ireland, uh, which was neutral in the war. That's what you had. Uh, he had a EU plan as well. It's Tariq, unfortunate. Um, Tariq, let's. Uh, <laughs> in, indeed. Indeed, the, the first uh, the first Asian Union was the Greater East Asia Economic uh, Co-Prosperity Sphere as well uh, of Japan's. But um, qu um, the question of microphone two. Hello. Uh, my question uh, comment was made about a solution to the migrant crisis being stability in the Middle East, which I think is a sentiment that is also echoed by many leaders around the world, David Cameron included. Um, I, for one, I can't really understand what would be, what would bring about stability in the Middle East. Obviously, people think bullets and bombs helps, but, um, I mean, what would the panel suggest as uh, contributing to stability in the Middle East. That's such a magnificently complex question. I'm going to ask each panellist for a short, sharp, bullet-like answer. <laughs> Think of yourself as a tabloid journalist, Michael, and go for it. Greg, could you, do you mind repeating the question? The question is that the proposition is that one solution to the uh, vast flow of people out of the Middle East would be stability in the Middle East, and what will bring stability in the and Middle we're, East? We're, we're being asked for a short, sharp tabloid headline on this. Uh, yeah. No, well, a bit more than a headline, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, short, sharp answers. I think history shows that stability in the Middle East coincides with powerful states. Uh, one of the big problems is that we've seen uh, fundamental weakening of, of state structures. Um, uh, you know, I think that uh, unfortunately, stability in the Middle East is a long way off now. I think uh, we're going to be looking at a generation or more of instability until a powerful state or several powerful states rise again. Um, I think uh, we have uh, a terrible loss of the centre in the, in the Middle East and um, we're going to be watching a lot of pain and bloodshed for a long time. Helen? My short answer is I don't know. Um, my longer answer is that even though we don't know, and if someone who knows infinitely more about the region and history than I do says that it's going to be a generation or more before we have that stability that would obviously be the best answer to the problem, we have to deal with the consequences of that instability now. We can't do what I think David Cameron is doing, which is hiding behind the fact that obviously it'd be better if these people didn't need to be refugees. Yes, I agree. However, they are. So, we have refugees, now we must deal with that. Tariq. Well, leaving aside the question of refugees, which we've, we, which we've dealt with before, that they come because of the war, um, I think the one thing that is not going to create stability is repeated Western interventions for whatever reason. <clears throat> That is, that is very obvious. As to the situation now, I think the sooner the Western powers leave, it'll be messy. It's messy already. Uh, they failed in Afghanistan. Iraq is a total uh, and complete mess. Syria is a mess. Libya is a mess. The powers in that region will have to sort it out. This world, which was stable for a long period, has been uh, destabilized. And one of the forces that destabilized it, Al-Qaeda, 
came from a country, a political culture, and a religious ideology, which is the official ideology of Saudi Arabia, the one country that is regarded in the West as its longest and most reliable ally. That country remains stable, though it's destabilizing Yemen now in an awful way. Uh, and that too, I mean, if you had democracy in Saudi Arabia, the people were allowed to vote, they would vote out this Wahhabi monarchy. I have no doubt about it, because the majority of Muslims in Saudis are not Wahhabis. Uh, we might go to the questioner at microphone one. Um, my question is basically, um, I am pro the European project. Um, I am a European citizen. I see a lot of people talking about the collapse of the European Union, the collapse of Europe, and I think I want to know more about what would, so what is the alternative? Because it's very important to go, uh, you know, to go say, oh, if this is bad, that's terrible, that's terrible, but so what do you need to do to improve it? And is really a divided Europe an option when you have more unification in other parts of the world where the market economy needs trade, where you don't have enough people in one country to, to have enough trade to be important? So, Tariq, a, like, what's a, the future? A, a riff on that question then is, what happens the day after the EU referendum in Britain? People vote to leave, yeah. as, as you mentioned you might. What well, happens the next day? I don't think if people vote to leave uh, in Britain, and it's a big if, I'm not at all sure that it will happen, but let's say they do. Um, I don't think it will affect trade and trading patterns in Europe at all. I think what it will give is the British government power to do what they want to do, which is not always good, uh, and ignore many of the European uh, regulations which they don't like. That's what will happen. I do not think any party in, or any major party in uh, Britain is going to turn its back on Europe as such. It's just that the fact that there were two ways to go. Either Europe was kept as a total economic entity, which it really is, or it was made into a political entity as well, which means large-scale democratization of Europe's institutions, giving its parliament real powers, taking power away from the European Commission. That last thing which I would favor hasn't happened and is unlikely to happen. So how the Germans, and they are the big ones in this, will proceed, I don't know. But look, Norway isn't a member of the European Union either and carries on perfectly well in its relations uh, uh, with Europe. So this is not necessarily going to mean anything which is hugely uh, different today, except that if we have to get visas to travel to Europe, it'll be really irritating. <coughs> Uh, for them and for us. And there, and there are things like this which do mean uh, some things. But by and large, not. And I think that the, Europe, the enlargement of Europe following the end of the Cold War was something pushed through by the Americans, backed by the British. And it was something pushed through too quickly. Instead, if they had created a core Europe with a set of social and political policies as well as economic policies and then allowed countries to come in, you know, purely from the European Union's point of view, it would have been far more rational and far better. Instead, they brought in all these small countries with the results that you see in many of these countries got in by lying. Their budgets were by no means up to becoming part of the euro. The Greeks lied, the Italians lied. 
The French, too, it has to be said, didn't tell the truth. So, uh, you know, the whole thing was based, quite honestly, on, on, on So, bullshit. Helen, for your... Um, for your... Um, Helen, for your, for your reaction to the question, then I'd ask you to answer particularly or respond particularly to Tariq's point. Was it in fact a mistake to expand the European Union too quickly? And do you agree with Tariq's description of the way it was expanded? Would Europe have been better consolidating a cohesive political economic identity before it formally expanded, maybe giving some sort of associate membership status to, to its neighbours? The huge mistake was actually the euro rather than the expansion of the EU. Eastern European countries did want the shelter and the aspiration to become part of Europe, and that could have been managed without the euro. The tensions became unbearable when they created a partial currency union, and partial currency unions can't last. You either, you either have a central bank that runs it all, or, including debt, or you don't. Um, I th I, I'm, go I'm going to say I'm going to vote yes for Britain to stay in in, in Europe, I think it would be a disaster for Britain. I feel quite differently about this to Tariq. I, partly possibly because I'm a citizen of a different European country and very much enjoy my freedom to live where I want, where I want to and work where I want to in Europe. Um, but I'd like you to expand just a little more on the Euro. Um, yep. Uh, so you think it was a disaster. That's very interesting. Is there a way out? No. William Hague famously said it's a burning house from which there is no That's exit. That's exactly right. Is there a way? So what's the best way then to manage the contradiction which you explored earlier yeah. between the, you know, the circumstances which would allow a euro to function and the circumstances yeah. which actually exist? If anyone can find a way to, to sort of to break it up in an orderly manner, that might be the best thing to do. I don't think anyone can do that, and I think that the, the discussions that European politicians have had about many other things show that we haven't really managed to have those sort of complex multi-way discussions. So now the euro is here. So now you need to do the things that a currency requires. And if you look at other countries, very big countries with disparate economies, the USA being the obvious example, I mean, states in the USA stand behind each other's debts. They, they don't have separate uh, governments that can uh, create uh, loans that are then essentially, you know, what, what is it they say? You socialise your gains and you privatise your losses or the other mm. way around. You know, you can't do this. You have to, you, we're going to have to have a proper full currency union. That's right. I, think I just want to say about the lying to get in. What, what they lied about was they lied to get into the euro. I mean, these countries, France, Italy and Germany, lied about their, their, their um, financial situation to get into the euro rather than to get into Europe. And I make a strong distinction between the EU and the euro. Yes, in Australia, that old saw was that you were... Uh, agrarian socialists particularly, that they, they, they privatise their gains and socialise their losses. Yeah. But Michael, um, and one I might also... I'm not saying I do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, 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 certainly not. And um, you write books so you don't have any gains to privatise or socialise. So. Um, and it's interesting that the other two great big countries, much bigger than Europe, which don't all share a common language, are China and India, of mm. course. And... Mm. Um, but, Michael, I think it's very important, it's incumbent upon you as the third member of the panel to tell us how are you going to vote in Britain's referendum <laughs> to, uh, to stay in or leave the Euro, uh, the EU. Sorry. Uh, look, if, if I was able to vote, I think I'd go, I'd go with Helen. I mean, I, 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 I see Tarek's point about um, countries like Norway uh, being outside of the Euro, uh, uh, outside of Europe, but 
continuing to benefit economically. But I think, you know, we, we shouldn't um, get ourselves into the position where we say, well, that means you could deconstruct Europe and have each of the European countries existing on its own and still have them as prosperous and as stable and as safe as they are now. I think each of those three qualities would be degraded uh, for European societies and European countries if, if that were to happen. But, you know, the interesting thing here is I think Europe will continue to exist as it does. Um, I'm sceptical, Tariq, that uh, a Brit British no vote will bring about reform in Brussels. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, I think Brussels is... It marginalise Britain. Britain will never be heard again on anything. Absolutely. I think the and Germans would use it to push through certain reforms which they want to push through because one of the largest EU members will be out. That's if they leave. You know, you'll be disturbed to hear this, Tariq, but I think I agree with you, really. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, think, I think we need to... <laughs> I, I, think, I think Europeans need to get over the thought that government has to be good government. You know, we've, <laughs> we've every, certainly disproved that proposition in Australia every, over every, the years. Every, every, big country, every big country around the world has, you know, increasingly a first world economy and military size, but a third world government. The best <laughs> example of this is the United States of America. If you, anyone here who has tried to get a, a driver's licence in the United States of, the, of America, you think you had been transported back into 1940s uh, Queensland. That is, that is the experience <laughs> of what it's like. So Europe will be no different from any other major power. It will be a big, ramshackle, internally diverse and very badly governed place. Oh, not, to, uh, not to mention trying to, get, uh, trying to decipher the American tax code if, Indeed. You, if you live there for a minute. Um, <laughs> Mind you, I think this is an element where Asia is challenging the first world because, um, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, the average Chinese would say, I want to be governed as well as the West is governed. Now, uh, the average guy in Shanghai might like a bit more freedom, but you can't really say to him, by golly, look at Spain and Greece and Washington, and uh, that's really what we need here in, uh, in China. <laughs> Microphone number two. So you mentioned the uh, democratic deficit. Uh, Post-war Europe had a range of successes despite that democratic deficit. So my question is, what's changed? And uh, beyond that, we've seen consistently low turnout in European parliamentary elections. So I'm wondering why that is and what can be done about it. Tariq, why don't we start with you on that? Well, I think the reason for the low turnout uh, has been I mean, here you have the donkey vote increasing as well, as many of you know. So it's not just Europe. This is a universal phenomenon that many young people especially, but not just them, feel that it doesn't matter who they vote for, nothing changes. And that is a, a, a view that is shared by many people who do vote as well, just because they're in the habit of voting. And these young people came out to vote in Greece for Cyprus, in Spain for Podemos, uh, voted overwhelmingly no in the Greek referendum. Uh, when they are offered something they can sympathize with or empathize with, they do come out and vote. They don't trust the mainstream parties any longer. The country where you used to have the lowest popular vote was the United States. It still is, by the way. Uh, where people really said this is Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Maybe Donald Trump will change that. 
but I don't know about that. But that's, that's the effective reason. They, they can't identify with any of this politics. They don't regard this as democracy. It's either sham democracy increasingly in the Western world, or it's a sort of very bizarre sort of imitation democracy in Russia and some of these Eastern European countries. Mm. Helen, do you have a... I think with our... You know, we, we're so far away from the Second World War that, uh, and so far away from the Cold War that the, sort of some of the big questions don't appear as urgent as they did. So we go down to you know, more complex, nuanced situations and you're trying to vote for, uh, trying to decide between two parties who maybe have what look like rather similar answers to difficult questions or no answer because the problem is so unanswerable. Like boring things like pensions. How are you going to pay for pensions in the future? People don't want to think about it. They don't have a good answer. When, when a question seems to touch people and when there is a, a clear answer and something that you can get behind, you do see big turnout. So my own country, Ireland, we recently had a referendum on allowing gay marriage and it was an incredibly joyous thing. You know, a country where homosexuality was illegal just 20-something years ago. You know, we had parties on the streets and people, young people voted in extraordinary numbers. But that's because it's rare. It's a rare situation where there is something that you can vote for that's so clear and that galvanises so people so much. The rest of the time we're arguing over you know, small policy differences in a very constrained situation and where the appeal of what I would say a populist is, by the way, is somebody who doesn't allow themselves to be constrained too much by reality, whether they're right or left. Those of us who are in the reality-based community... You, you know, Helen, you might have offered me that definition when Toby... <laughs> <laughs> Then, late you know, to come up with it now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So those of us who are sort of constrained by reality are there saying, oh, well, it's very complicated. I don't know how to pay for pensions. It's going to be very hard. We're going to have to raise the pension age, whatever. These things no one wants to hear. And that's the democratic deficit to me, is that, you know, you're either in this constrained situation where the problems are hard, the answers are not very appealing, or you're allowing yourself to just go on to fantasy land and right, left, any direction you like. And in that situation, it's hard to know who to vote for, and it's hard to galvanise people. Ladies and gentlemen, we're drawing to the, the end of our, um, of our session. Um, is there one more question over there? OK, well, just before I call you, I'll just tell you that we have four minutes left, so I'll ask the panellists in responding to your question to make their uh, comments in summary or any closing fusillades or declarations that they'd like to issue. And I'd also like to alert you to the fact that uh, all of the panellists who have not resisted the urge to, to write books will be happy to sign them for you in, after this, uh, I'll after this session. I'll give my signature to anyone who wants it. Uh, <laughs> but Helen will, will sign promissory <coughs> notes which you can paste into future editions of... <laughs> of her forthcoming, uh, and the Australian chapter in her memoirs will be especially delightful. Yes. Microphone number one. Um, so the establishment of the EU was supposed to strengthen Europe, and we've seen with the, um, the crisis of the single currency and also the current crisis of the Schengen border system that it hasn't entirely succeeded. Um, what reforms are necessary in order to strengthen Europe as it exists today? And given its current vulnerability, should Europe be engaging in uh, military campaigns or other aggressions such as has been suggested by Australian politicians against Syria, for example? So let's, uh, let's, start with, um, let's start with Michael on that. We've got two minutes and 47 seconds left. Uh. <laughs> Very briefly, I think uh, there's no real bureaucratic reform that I would, I would take off the shelf. 
I think what needs to happen in Europe is is really um, a, a an agreement. Um, uh, a council of, of the biggest members of Europe suddenly start to get together and work out political agreements to what they're going to do about really big challenges facing the continent, um, be it um, the threat of Russia, be it the, the economic problems and so on. Uh, that is the way forward for Europe, for Europe to start to work much more like a quote-unquote normal great power in world politics. Tariq? I don't think that's going to happen, by the way. I think it's a, a real and complete utopia. More and more, I think, the key decisions, like in relation to the Ukraine, are being made by, the, by Washington and Berlin. It's uh, Angela, Angela Merkel who decides European policy on Ukraine, and she has been given that permission by the United States. And I think increasingly, given the weakness of Europe, and the dominance of Germany within Europe, that is what will happen. No, I don't support Europe going to wars in Syria or anywhere else. Uh, I think, brief in a word to say what is badly needed, if the European Union as an institution is going to be reformed or survived, is democracy is giving real powers to the European Parliament in having an elected European government. But nobody at the moment seems to be wanting to go in that direction, which used to be a dream in the 50s and 60s and 70s. That dream has been abandoned, and effectively, uh, Europe has become a machine for financialized capital. That is what it represents today and nothing else. Helen? Well, I, I think that I will just give a sort of a short-term answer, which is that we are in a burning house with no exits on two questions, and they are specifically uh, the, the ongoing weakness of the euro and the response to the greatest migrant crisis since the Second World War. And on both of those, as I mentioned earlier, Europe has contradictory rules. It's tried to have its cake and eat it on both of them. It's, it's got to make a decision. The euro exists now. We've got to do what it takes, absolutely what it takes to stabilise it. And we have to have a common European agreement on how we deal with migrants, preferably, by the way, in a humane manner. But, you know, at least a common arrangement on both of those. And then Europe can kind of get back stable again. And maybe we can think, what do we want to do? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think we've had three <laughs> fabulous panellists, Tariq Ali, Helen Joyce and Michael Wesley. Let's give them a round of applause.